Thank you, Danny. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to, again, turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. While you're doing that, I want to add this one announcement to what we already uh, made announcements today, but I think this will help a lot of you ladies. You know, we, uh, uh, I think it was last year was the first year, maybe last year was the second year, I forget, but we, we separated the guys out from the gals as far as, we used to play co-ed softball, but the guys were getting, uh, the teams were getting so good that the girls were getting hurt. And uh, we had a couple of serious accidents, so we decided to, uh, uh, to split them up. Probably one of the greatest ministry uh, things we ever did, and uh, it really quadrupled our uh, ministry. We're probably going to have uh, five or maybe even six girls' teams this year, and that's always exciting. But uh, this coming Saturday, uh, uh, Beth Hill informed me back here that uh, she wants to hold a, a, a softball clinic for the ladies uh, this coming Saturday. It'll be at the fields that we always play, and it'll be at 10 o'clock. And uh, you can bring all the friends you want, bring them there. And I think that will be a great uh, addition and a, and a great thing to do. A best a, accomplished softball player. And I think that for many of you, that'll really help, and it'll be a good time. And it'll be just a good time to get together. And uh, we'll, uh, I think that that'll be fun. There'll be a sign-up sheet back on the uh, uh, information table. Uh, after church this morning, and you can sign that up. We'll remind you again Thursday night, but I think for those of you ladies that want to come out and get a little warm-up practice, that'll be great. So I'm excited about that. So you can sign up for that. Now, last week, uh, we again began to do what we're doing in this book, and that is building on principles as we come through them. And uh, last week, we built on what we learned the following week, and we're going to build on last week, this week, and continue on through that. And hopefully, uh, you're beginning to understand the theme of this great chapter and the theme of the great book of 2 Corinthians. But chapter 3 really relates to you and to I as God's priest ministering in, ministering in God's tabernacle, the ministry that God has given us. And I, uh, last week and uh, probably the week before, as we got down here, right now, um, if you would be setting this chapter up, so to speak, or dividing it up, we've talked about eight great principles that we've learned in chapter 3. And maybe you don't have them exactly this way, but I'll give them to you how I have them in my Bible because this is how I remember it. This is not necessarily what you need to put in the back of your Bible. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how to uh, lay out the book of 2 Corinthians. Remember, we got two studies going here. We're going to learn biblical principles that you use in dealing with people but then I also want you to understand the book of 2 Corinthians, not only for yourself, because it's going to be what motivates you in the ministry, but to help uh, others and be able to explain it as you work through it. So in chapter 3 so far, we have eight great principles that we've learned, and we're going to add to it today. But so far, we know now that principle number one that you should uh, understand is this chapter shows us that the only, the only real proof we have that we are saved uh, is our ministry. And uh, we can talk about we're saved and all of the things that we say, but we're very clear from chapter 3 that uh, God saved you to serve. And if you're, somebody is not ministering uh, the Word of God, uh, then they're not doing what God wants them to do. And Paul's made it very clear that that really is the only proof of our salvation is the ministry that we have, fulfilling what God has called you to do. We also look, the second one would be the fact that God's called us to be totally sufficient in Him. That is so vital in your Christian life. 
getting to the place where your sufficiency is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the third one. And the third one is that by, uh, our, uh, by that sufficiency in Him, uh, then we become able ministers. And we talk about uh, your ability. Uh, God doesn't care about your ability. God cares about your availability. God will make you everything that He wants you to be. It's not how much... Uh, one time, uh, uh, D.L. Moody, who was a great preacher, uh, was preaching uh, in a great revival cycle, and he was an incredible preacher. And uh, he was really stirring up the churches where he went. And, and he went to this one church and uh, great revival broke out. But you know as well as I do, and it's true of any church, that not everybody's happy there was revival. They had a meeting afterwards of the deacons to, to try to, you know, kind of catch up on all that had happened and to kind of debrief and to plan for another great revival. And they all unanimously, except one guy, uh, wanted Moody D.L. Moody to come back. And uh, it was obviously that this guy was not too happy with the great revival. Obviously, he was a Christian that, if he was a Christian, that was way out in left field and wasn't happy about all the change, as many God's people get that way when they're out of fellowship with God. And he, he snarled out why they had to have Moody back. And he made the, made the comment, is, is Moody have the corner on the Holy Spirit of God? Like, there's nobody else out there? One of the deacons looked back and said, you know, pal, I said, I don't think that, I don't think the, the issue is that Moody has a corner on the Holy Spirit of God. I think the issue is that the Holy Spirit has the corner on Moody. And that's the key, you see, the ability, the ability to be an able minister. The fourth one, we saw the tremendous aspect of our life as an open book, an epistle written on our hearts that all men read. You are today what people see and read in your life by the things that you do, the way you conduct yourself, and the way that you display the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you're an open book that people read on your heart. Then, then last week we saw uh, the fact that how that the New Testament was better than the Old Testament. We now have a better appreciation of that. The Old Testament, you know, uh, it, was, it was the letter of the law, and it brought forth death. The New Testament was the Spirit of God. It brought forth life and brought forth light. And then the sixth one we saw, we saw the thing that makes the New Testament better than the Old Testament is the Old Testament was temporary, wasn't it? Done away with. The New Testament is better because of the fact that it's eternal. And the Old Testament law could not save you, but the New Testament life and spirit can give you eternal life. The seventh one, was we learned, is how important it is in all, uh, all this to have the right spirit. That it's our spirit that really is the, when it lines up with God's spirit that God takes and, and lets everybody read what's written on our heart, written by the spirit. We talked about the witness of the spirit in Romans chapter 8 last week. And then the eighth one was that our ministry is to give life to dead things. That's the only reason God saves you, is to give life to dead things. And, of course, we know that dead things in the Bible are pictures of unsaved people. Every example in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where whether it's Lazarus or whether it's Jairus' daughter or whether it's the 12-year-old girl or whether it's the young man uh, that Jesus stopped the funeral progression and laid his hand and said, young man, arise, and he came out. Every example in the Bible where somebody is dead and then God raises them up and gives them life back there's a picture of an unsaved man getting saved. You can just mark that down in your Bible. Now today, 
I want to talk to you about the next aspect of this. I want to take an Old Testament passage that we briefly saw last week, and I want to add to it today. I want to add the rest of the verses in this chapter that really show you how an Old Testament story illustrates everything that we've studied so far in chapter 3. Now, what I'm about to do today is not only got great information for you of where you're at in your own personal relationship with the Lord, but this is something that you want to learn to do in your Bible. This is something that you, in time, want to have the ability to recognize that the stories in the Old Testament, the stories in the Old Testament actually illustrate the principles of the New Testament. And when you get the principles and the story, you get completely everything you need to know and understand on how everything works. And when you learn to do this in your Bible and you learn to do it well, it's when I tell you that you have what I call a working knowledge in the Bible. Now, Paul certainly understood what I'm, everything I'm about to say to you today, and I'll tell you why that he did. I know that he did. Because he's the one who makes this reference, and hopefully once you see how this thing lays out uh, and how it ties in, uh, you'll be able to see it and better use it and better understand it yourself. Now, I know standing here this morning, and I, I, many of you and I have a, a, a great relationship and We've talked in many different aspects on many different levels. And I, I want to say to you this morning that I, I totally believe what I'm about to say to you. I believe that, and I know that many of you really want to do right. I really believe that. I believe many of you here this morning, you really do love God. I, I don't doubt it at all. I think many of you want to really sincerely learn the ministry. I believe that, I watch you, I believe that many of you you take every one of these sermons to heart and you do something with that. I believe that. I really do. I, I, I believe that many of you have in your heart and in your mind, you set yourself apart to learn ministry. I truly believe that. And I believe that you have committed in your heart to minister with me. That you, you have bought into what we're trying to do at Old Paz Baptist Church. You believe it's the real deal. You believe that this is where God is at and this is where God would have you to be. And I believe that uh, you're dialing yourself in to uh, help me fulfill in this church what God has called this church uh, to do. I really believe that. And I say that to you because of this. It's lessons like the one we're going to look at today that really help you. Not that everything in the Bible doesn't help you. I'm not suggesting that. But there are certain things that you study the way you study them that will impact you in different areas of your life. And that will help you. It'll give you a little more insight into what you're trying to do. It'll get you a little more closer to God where you need to be. It'll give you more uh, knowledge about God, which we all need. And it'll show you how God works through the Bible and through the Bible principles, which is invaluable. You young kids here today, and I'm always glad when it's Kids Sunday that you get to come in, because many of you down the line, you've already stepped into the aspect of ministry. We got, our, we got our two little gals that are running their prayer groups, and everybody's involved in that, and all of the little girls that uh, take part of that. We got our guys group, and every Sunday when the adults are meeting, they're meeting and teaching. I mean, these kids are teaching the Bible principles. That's what I'm talking about. And many of you are already uh, so, uh, into this thing. So I'm glad that you're here today. I know that I'm speaking to adults this morning, and some of it may be over your heads, but let me tell you something, guys and gals, get everything you can. 
Get, grasp everything I'm saying that you can today and use it in what God has called you to do. And I'm so thankful for you have the spirit of ministry. It speaks well of not only the parents, but it speaks well of where this church is going and its plan is, is filtering all the way down through the young kids. And I'm excited about that. A study like this, what we're going to do is taking a, an Old Testament story and then running the New Testament verses on it, showing you how the thing develops itself and leaves you with a great understanding of where you should be and I should be in our life. It's invaluable. We talked last week about the common man having a common Bible and doing a common ministry. And that's really what this church is all about. It's what every church should be about. Common men and women. Nobody any better than anybody else. The pastor doesn't live any better or isn't any better than the people in it. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same situation. And we're all trying to do one thing. And that is to fulfill what God has saved us to do and be faithful in it till Jesus comes back. Now, I'm going to read a a verse that Paul gave us last week. Kind of refresh your memory. And then I'm going to add to it the verses that were in this chapter that we're going to look at. And then I'm going to take this thing and show you one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament and line it up to the principles in the New Testament. Now, if you're going to get into the counseling side of this, this is what you're going to learn to do. When we get into our times together, this is what I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you over 100 scenarios where you actually can see the story, get the principles, match them together, and get exactly how you handle every situation you need to deal with. And that's Bible-based, based on the Word of God. Now, I want to pick it up in verse 7. And this is, we read this last week, but I want to I add to it again, and I want to start here, and then we'll come on back through it and add some things, but this will kind of set the context. Here's what he says in verse 7. But if the ministration of death, we now know that that's the Old Testament, written and engraved in stone was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses. Now, this is what I want to focus on today. So the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. And then he goes on in that verse and he begins to begin to tell us how the New Testament is better and all that. But it's the face of Moses that I want to talk about today. I want you to see something about this face and I want you to learn the Old Testament story and the principles. And I guarantee you when you leave here today, uh, I'm not saying you'll be better off, but you will be uh, better informed of where you're at. Your better off situation will depend on what you do with it. But now, look down here in verse 13. Let's add the verses this week. We already know this is about the face of Moses. Here's what he says. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Now, we know that would be the law. But in their minds... But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, uh, the veil shall be taken away. Now, I know of no other man in the Bible that when we begin to study the aspect of ministry, I, I don't know of another man in the Bible that would be better to study. And, and you need to know this. 
there are men's lives in the Bible that God has put in there for you and me to study. You don't learn ministry just by going to a church and listening to somebody teach you about ministry. That's good. But what you need is the fundamentals of ministry that are laid out for you in these Old Testament stories. And I don't know of a better man in the Bible that if you want to learn how to minister and you truly want to be God's man or God's woman and ministering to other people, I, I, just, I would be hard-pressed to find somebody else uh, that would be better for you than the life of Moses. There's more written in the Bible about Moses than any other man in the Bible outside the Lord Jesus Christ. No other man in the Bible has four books devoted to his life. No other man in the Bible, he writes the first five books of the Bible and then writes many of the Psalms. And I don't know of another man (coughs) in the Bible that in the New Testament, you realize that in the New Testament, long after the Old Testament, there's 98 references to Moses in the New Testament. He's an important character. He truly is. He truly is. And when you want to study ministry, when you want to understand uh, ministry, he's where you go. His life and his ministry spans 120 years, according to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 7. The Bible says that at 120 years old, his natural strength had not abated, and he still was as strong and as fervent in his mind as he could ever be. That right there is a great key. That's right there is why if you're a man of God and God's called you to preach, when you hit 65 or 66 or 67 and everybody else around you is retiring, when you hit 65, if you're a man of God preaching the Word of God, you don't retire, you refire. And then you, you realize that God has called you to do what you're doing for as long as God gives you the strength to do it. How many times and how many examples have I seen where a man who had got to the point where he was in his 60s or in his, even in his 70s, and he still had the natural strength. Hey, when you get into your 60s or your 70s, you're probably really, as far as understanding life and the ministry, and you've got... 40 years behind you now, some cases 50 years behind you. You've seen it all. You, if you paid attention, you should have learned it all. You're at the most valuable place in your life. But that's what we do because we don't take ministry seriously when we get to that golden age where you buy the shoes with the Velcro strips on them, you know, and you head down to the shuffleboard court, you suddenly think that now you're going to go play golf the rest of your life because you did your work for God. Let me tell you something. Your work is never done for God. And men don't understand that today. Moses lived to be 120 years old. An incredible study of his life and his ministry. A great key to his life and his success, I must tell you this, is the fact that he's, he's one of only two men in the Bible who God calls his friend. The other one would be Abraham. And I think in itself that's quite remarkable. And he's called God's friend in Exodus chapter 33 verse 11. Now, I must stop, pause here for a minute and say this. That's a great study in itself because it brings up the concept that just because you're saved doesn't mean you're God's friend. You realize there's over 300,000 characters in the Bible? And out of 300,000 characters in the Bible, God only says about two of them that they're my friend. Now, I believe that God was friends with many of them, but I believe the Holy Spirit of God is showing you 
how rare that is in God's people's lives today. Now, God has to love you. Don't confuse the two. God has to love you because Jesus Christ died for you. But sometimes we put God in a different place than we put ourselves. And I want to tell you something. You as a Christian have to love everybody. You have no, no reason to hate anybody this morning. Under the guidelines of the New Testament, you and I are to love everybody. But that doesn't mean that everybody you choose to be your friend. Well, God has to love everybody. But that doesn't mean you're his friend. And you better think about that for about 30 years. Bubba's song last week, I love Bubba singing, I love Bubba's song. What a friend we have in Jesus. Bubba, next time you sing it, sing it this way. What kind of friend we could have in Jesus. Because I don't believe, I don't believe for a moment that all God's people are his friends. I believe that God picks his friends based on some character qualities. You realize that there's only two men in the Bible that says that he was his friend. There's only two men in the Bible that says that walked with God. And there's only one man in the Bible that says God says he loved. Now you take those four, five guys and study their lives and Apply what they did in your world, and I guarantee you, you will come out walking with God, being God's friend, and God will look at you and say, he's my friend, we're walking together, and I love him. That's quite a task to try to do. Been saved five years or more, should have had it done already. Now Moses' life in ministry, and the process of where and how he gets there is a four-point process. I want you to see this today. I want you to see it for a couple of reasons. I want you to see it because it's a key to understanding his life, but I want you to also see it because I see this in many of your lives today. I see this same process in many of your lives today. You know why? Because you and I are no different than Moses. And the same four-point process that worked for him, if you're going to learn to minister, will work for you. You see, the Bible has patterns in it. And, 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 and I, just, I just believe, I've been taught all my life, that when you do something, you do it by the pattern found in the Bible. When you don't do it by the pattern found in the Bible, you're going to wind up making a mess out of it. I've seen 40 years plus of men making messes out of everything in their lives because they will not submit to the patterns found in the Bible. You want a minister? Study Moses. You study Moses? Here's how you study him and apply yourself to it in four ways. First thing about him is this. You want to break down his life? The first aspect of his life is his calling out from the world for the work of God. Now, that'll be the early part of Exodus. That'll be basically chapter 1 and, and probably chapter 2 up to about verse 15. But the first part of his life that you're going to break this thing down is his calling out for the work of God's ministry. And you know what I see about that? He didn't look too hot coming out of the gate, did he? God called him for the ministry, but he didn't get into the ministry right away. You see, Moses had some issues in his life that he had to get through. He had some trust issues. He had some personal issues. He had some things that even though God saw in him what God wanted, Moses didn't see in himself what God wanted. And I see a lot of you, when you came in this place, were just like that. 
If you're going to get into the ministry and you're going to have to work with young men and young ladies and work with people, you know what you've got to give them? You've got to have patience with them. And the way that you have patience with them, it's, I mean, you can, you can look at them and some of the stupid things that they do and they don't do the things the way I'd like them to do and they don't do the things the way that I want them to do and they don't do the things the way we, 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 would, we do it. But you know what? Moses didn't either out of the gate. But God understood. He saw something in Moses that he was willing, I almost said he was willing to put up with. That's not exactly accurate. He was willing to put up with it, but he also said, I'll take the screw-ups in your life and I'll teach you something by them. And boy, did he. Because that's the second section of his life. That would be Wilderness University. Now, hopefully it won't take you 40 years to figure it out. Truthfully, some of you will never figure it out if you have 200 years. But hopefully... Out of the gate, Moses comes out here and he says, God says, he, he, God wants him to be a deliverer. And he, he, he's not, he, he can't do it. He won't do it. And he gets into a jam. He kills an Egyptian. And he runs down in the wilderness. And he's down there for 40 years. But what happens down there in 40 years? It's where God gets him. See, sometimes God's got to get you away from the circumstances you're in. I mean, Moses had it pretty good in Egypt. Raised by Pharaoh. Lived in Pharaoh's house. Caught in a bondage between, he's an Egyptian, he's an Egyptian by the way he was raised, but he's a Hebrew by, by his life and by how he was born. You know, that's the same scenario you got. Because Egypt's a type of the world. And but the Bible says back in the Hebrews, uh, back in the book of Hebrews, that about Moses, that when he, when he was faced with that decision, he thought it better to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to be a prince in Egypt. Egypt's the type of the world. You know, that's your decision. The world wants to make you a prince. Excuse me. The world has made you a prince. You have the best the world has to offer, many of you. And now God calls you to minister, and that's really why you won't minister. That's why you won't do what God called you to do. We're just like Moses. And Moses said, it is better for me, and I'm going to choose rather to suffer the afflictions of this old world than to have all the pleasure in Egypt. And he made that decision in this second section. Because this is where he had his encounter with God. This is where God got talked to him through the burning bush. And yet, I'm telling you right now, and you know the story. He still didn't have all the answers, but he's moving in the right direction. And then, oh, the third section. Probably my greatest section in the Bible that I love and study. And this will be his ministry to the nation of Israel. This will pick up in about Exodus chapter 20. Or maybe Exodus chapter 12, I guess. And then move on from there. And this is where you learn ministry. This is where Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the four books. This is where it sets the pattern. How he learned how to deal with the problems. Let me tell you something. If there's anything... That will prepare you for the insanity of dealing with God's people you have to deal with in the New Testament. Now, it'll be going back and looking at the insanity he had to deal with with God's people in the Old Testament. Because God's people are always the same. 
They're the most selfish. They're the most self-centered. It's all about them. It, it doesn't matter what God does for them. It's about what they want. That's the people of the Old Testament. That's the people of the New Testament. And boy, do you learn. Boy, do you learn. Every Christian here today that's worth a salt ought to have semi-memorized Psalm 78. That great psalm that tells us how that there's no difference between the nation of Israel and us. That we're all equally worthless. And then you have the fourth section. And that is his death and his final victory. I'm going to tell you something. I couldn't in words today put in form and give you the impression that I would like to about studying the death of Moses which had come back in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 7. What a great chapter that is. I'd like to tell you this morning, the inside, how that, that Moses didn't get into the promised land, how he wanted to get into the promised land. I'd like to go between the lines and the chapters and show you the conversation that they had. But Moses, by that time in his life, had learned. As bad as he wanted to go to the promised land, and I guarantee you, when God told him he wasn't going over because of what he did back there of smiting the rock instead of speaking to the rock, I bet you Moses tried to work out with God, alibi with God, use every card he had of being God's friend and simply say, well, look, if I can't go over, man, for 40 years, this has been my dream. For 40 years, this has been my message. For 40 years, this is all I've eat, sleep, and drink was going over. And now, because of one thing, I can't go over? Hey, Lord. Just let me sneak over tonight for 20 minutes and I'll come back. We won't tell anybody. God didn't let him go. And by that time, I find the great character of Moses that he had learned some things. And you know what he'd learned? He'd learned by that time in his life some things that you and I need to learn today. That even though he wanted to go to the promised land, even though he had a right to go to the promised land, and even though he had done everything that God said except one thing, that would be a good thing for we would get mad at God about, wouldn't it? Well, God, all of my life, I did this, and now one thing I did, and you're not going to let me do this? Wah, 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 wah. You know what he did? He learned. He learned that God knew best. He learned that God knew if God wasn't going to let him go over there as desperately as he wanted to go, and his whole life he wanted to be there, he had come to the place in his life where he could trust God that he knew if God didn't want him there, there was a reason for it, and he learned to trust him in it. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. If you're ever going to minister, if you're ever going to work with people, you better break this man down in these four things I gave you, and you better spend a little time working that thing through. Every section is an invaluable study, and that's not even our message today. Every section is an invaluable study of one man's life as God's man. And then when the key is when Paul wanted to use an example of ministry and everything that it represents, in chapter 3, he used Moses. Now let's go back to the Old Testament where Paul is making a reference to this in First, Second Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, what he's saying in verse 7, verse 13 through 16. Let's look at the glory of God in the face of Moses 
and the veil that he puts on his face. Now, for you that maybe aren't familiar with the Bible, and that's certainly fine, we're going to go to Exodus chapter 34. Yes, that is in the Old Testament. If it's easy, it's a second book in. And I want to read for you one of the greatest stories anywhere in the Bible for ministry. Exodus chapter 34, we would like to pick it up in verse 27. Follow along. Let's ask the Lord to open our hearts and bless us as we look at this great passage. Now, dear Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, I I said it a while ago, and I do believe it. I believe there's many people in here that want to do what's right. I believe there's many people here that that want to minister for you. They'll do what needs to be done. And I know they're all sinners, and I know that we're all equally worthless. But, Lord, you saw something in Moses that you didn't see in everybody else. You saw something in me that you didn't see in everybody else. And obviously you see something in these people. That's the business you're in, Lord, seeing in our hearts and then taking those that are willing to let you be the sufficiency in their life and let you be the ability in their life and to let you make them the able minister that they need to be. So help us as we look at this great story today. And I do love you. do thank you. Thank you for the little kids being in here today. And, Lord, I love them so much, and they're so proud of them. Lord, I put them up against any kids on this planet uh, simply because that they're already learning to minister. And I thank you for the parents that are encouraging them and making sure their kids get here in time to be part of that. Lord, it's so valuable to, to their little life. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now look at verse 27. And the Lord said unto Moses... <laughs> Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tables of testimony of Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them Uh, in commandment, all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses put a veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. Father, thank us now. Take this passage. Use it. We'll give you the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want you to get this passage down today. We're here. We might as well get everything done at one time. I've told you many, many times, this is a tremendous chapter. It's a tremendous chapter historically. It's a tremendous chapter doctrinally. It's probably one of the greatest chapters inspirationally for your life and my life and where we're at contemplating ministering for the Lord, or in some cases, not contemplating it. But let me talk to you about it historically first. 
And they want to put this by this chapter here, 34, and I'd go all the way at the top of the page where verse 27 is on. And here's what I'd put. I'd put his, this, this book, this, this passage, uh, and I'd, I'd put the whole passage in yellow, and, and that's what I got in mind, just so it stands out, because this is a separate story you want to work with. And I'd put up here that historically, historically, this chapter uh, is a, a re-giving of the law. You remember just a while back, about two chapters back, Moses came down off of Mount Sinai with the original Ten Commandments. And the children of Israel, again, had went after uh, Baal, and they were, had made a golden calf, you know, and they'd taken all their jewelry and all this stuff and all the things that they uh, had, and they dumped it into a pot, and they made a big golden calf, and they're all worshiping it. And he, he got so angry at them that he actually broke the tablets. So this is a re-giving of those Ten Commandments, historically. That's what you want to put there. Now, doctrinally, oh my goodness, doctrinally, this is why Paul makes a reference to this uh, over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He makes an application to it doctrinally, and it says, this veil on Moses' face, this veil on Moses' face that showed the glory, well, the glory of God is Jesus Christ. That's the glory of God in the Bible. And what he's saying here again is that the Jews, they could not look at Moses' face and see the glory of God, which is Jesus Christ, and that's why he says even today they can't see God and see God's glory, which is Jesus Christ, because the Jews don't accept Jesus Christ. So now he's saying that the Jews have put the veil on their heart. And the glory of God, the light of God, can't shine into their heart to show them that Jesus is the glory of God. Therefore, if a Jew wants to accept God and he talks about God's Shekinah glory, I got news for you, pal. God's Shekinah glory is Jesus Christ. But you see, when they reject that, they were afraid of it. And now Paul makes the doctrinal application to this day. To this day. They couldn't look toward what was going to be abolished, the Old Testament. And to this day, he says, they have the veil on their heart, so God's light can't shine to them. They talk about God. The nation of Israel talks about God. They talk about the glory of God. But because they got the veil on their heart, they can't see that the glory of God they're talking about is Jesus Christ. I'll show it to you in a minute here. Now, inspirationally, now here's a story that is a picture that illustrates basically all the principles I've given you so far in the last couple of weeks. And it's the bottom line of what our ministry here should be. We talked about able ministries. We talked about God being our sufficiency. We talked about the epistle written on the tables of our heart. We talked about uh, giving life and giving light to dead things. Uh, everything that you're going to see in this story uh, illustrates that. That's why Paul chose it. Simply what I'm going to talk to you about today is, is the fact that the glory of what God is doing in the inside of you always finds its way out. I tell you many, many times that, you know, you want to have a relationship with God, it starts inward. I show you the difference between, the, I show you the difference between God's will and God's plan for your life. You want to do ministry for God, it starts on the inside, and then it, it, it comes out on the outside. But today I want to get more specific about it, and I'm going to show you exactly where it comes out. Because the glory of what God is doing inside you shows up on the outside in your face. And it's so true. What is in our heart always shows up on our face. That's called countenance in the Bible. 
whether you're sad, whether you're happy, whether you're mad, whether you're angry. You know, in preaching, I, I, one of the things that you guys need to learn to do, and it's hard to do. Most young guys don't, it takes a while to get used to it. But really good preaching and ministering to people what their needs are isn't about getting up and blindly just going through your message. Once you understand what I'm talking about today, that God's glory or the lack of God's glory shows up in your face, then you watch faces when you preach. I could almost tell you after 40 years experience, I can tell you sitting here preaching this morning, I can almost with, with ultra precision, and I don't mean to be a clairvoyant, I don't mean to have any great spiritual gifts, and I don't mean to be any great spiritual person. I'm just simply saying, I believe what the book says, and what is in your heart today is showing on your face. And when somebody, now look at you all smiling at me, I love that. <laughs> if I'd have been smart, I'd have said, what's in your face is in your wallet, and put it in the offering, and said that before, we'd have paid, we'd have bought the building off of this guy. That's why you look at faces when you preach. You don't look at the ceiling. You don't look at a blur. You watch people. This is why sometimes, and Mel taught me this, you got to see Mel. He would come down off the pulpit when it was high on a platform. He'd walk up and down the aisles. He'd look him right smack in the face. He'd walk over to every crowd. I don't have anything to get down off of, but I, I, but I can sure, it makes it easier for me. I just, but I walk out here and talk to you. You know why? Because you look at people's faces when you preach. I've had my sermon changed in the middle of my preaching based on what I see. I don't know how to explain that to you. Maybe that's just something that you learn in time. I don't know. But you ought to see the faces of some people when you preach to them. I mean, the old expression, if looks could kill. But it is so true. What's in our heart always shows up on our face. You know, you see it. Women who are in their 40s and their 50s who have lived a life of sin. It shows in their face. Their face looks like a road map of Chicago, inner city. I mean, it, it shows. You see guys who, who, who are, are 50 or 60 years old, but they look like they're 80 or they're 90 because they had a life of sin and a life of, of outside of God. And it shows up in their face. You and I always show in our face where our body has been and where it's at, where our heart is at, especially when you sit there and you're hearing the Word of God preached. And if it doesn't bear witness with the Spirit that's in you right now, let me tell you, I'll tell you in a minute what shows up on your face. Now the Bible says, and here's the verse I talked about a little while ago, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, you want to put this back over here in Exodus chapter 34. Here's what it says. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts, here it comes, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, here it comes, in the face of Jesus Christ. See that thing? The glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. And when Moses had been with God, that's the glory that he had. And when he came down, that glory today, Israel can't stand it. Oh, we're going to see it a little bit better here in a minute. Remember the great message to Israel from Stephen in Acts chapter 6? Remember that great message? The last chance that Israel had to get the kingdom? And old Stephen's coming down there. That whole chapter is one of the greatest sermons on the planet. 
And old Stephen's coming down there and he's putting it to them. And he says down there in verse 12, And he stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and he came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. And he set up false witnesses and said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the, and, and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the custom which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. You betcha. Because whatever's going on inside you today is sticking out on your face. You remember Genesis chapter 4, don't you? You remember our old buddy Cain? Him and Abel try to bring an offering to the Lord and Cain brings the wrong offering. And what happened? What does God say to him down there when the Bible says that God had respect unto Abel's offering, but unto Cain's he had not respect? The Lord goes to him and he simply says, Cain, why has thy countenance fallen? Come on, let me hear you say praise hallelujah. Come on, let me hear you say I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. It was his countenance. You know what Cain's problem was? He didn't get what he wanted. He didn't care what God wanted. And the, and, the, and the great example of that is, God tells him, are you upset with me, Cain? Are you upset with me because I didn't accept your offering? Well, I'll tell you what, Cain, there's no reason to be down in the dumps. There's no reason to be down there uh, in all that misery. There's no reason for your counsel, uh, your countenance to fall. Tell you what, Cain, We'll just chalk it up to, you missed that chapter in the Bible. You go back and get the right offering, bring it to me, I'll accept it. Cain didn't want to do that. You know why Cain didn't want to do that? Because Cain still wanted to do what he wanted to do. He's just like God's people today. You know that's what gets all of us in trouble? You realize that's what all of our problems stem from? Fundamentally, the book says one thing, and we do something else. And when God comes down and deals with us on it, you know what we do? We get another attitude. And we saw where Cain's attitude wound up. He killed his brother. He killed his brother. Now, Moses had the glory of God on his face, Exodus chapter uh, 34 tells us. And you may say, well, I wonder how he did that. I wonder how that happened. I wonder how I could have that. I want to be like that. Well, here's the answer, Exodus 33, 11. Here's the answer, a glory of God on his face, and it's same for you and for me. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh to, unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man departed not out of the tabernacle. You see, face to face. It comes from a face-to-face -face encounter with God. It comes to you being God's friend. It doesn't come because you're some lackadaisical, lazy Christian that wants it all your way in life. You don't get that. That's what I said. That's what I said. It's not about, it's not about what you want. And it isn't about the fact that, oh, you're saved and God loves you. Yes, he does. But that doesn't mean you're his friend today. You say, well, I disagree. I would too with the way your life looks. I disagree wholeheartedly if I were you. Because if I'm right, we just sealed your epitaph. Now this is why basically women 
who we know the type, picture of Christ, husband, picture of the church, husband type of Christ. So what they always worry about how their face looks. They worry about getting wrinkles. They buy thousands of dollars of skin cream. They'll take milk baths. They'll do mud packs. They'll get facelifts. If that don't work, they'll lower their body. <laughs> they'll get Votec injections. Botox. <laughs> the greatest example of this, if you remember anything at all, you remember, you remember Jim and Tammy Bay Baker? Faye Baker? Now there's your question. If you want a poster child for this, it's, it's Tammy Faye. She looked like a Christian version of Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, I want to tell you, for a Christian, for a Christian, there's an inner beauty. A woman's beauty isn't just skin deep. A man's beauty isn't just skin deep. There's a glory that radiates, an inner beauty, a glory that comes from your relationship with Christ in your heart that shines in your face. Now, let's break this chapter down here. Before time flees from us. Because I want you to see this. I think there's some things that some of you need to learn from this that'll help you today. And I'm preaching this to myself as much as I am to you, even though I've been through it a thousand times. I need to hear it again today. But I want you to get, and you'll want to list these down. I want to give you nine great lessons on this epistle in Exodus chapter 34. Of the epistle written in your heart showing up in your face. If you'll take these things I'm about to give you and you take them seriously and you do it, and I know full well sitting here right now that most of you won't, but I'm telling you, if you ever want to get the ministry where Moses is, here it is. There's a pattern for everything, gentlemen. Ladies, there's a pattern for everything in your life and my life. And I don't care what you want to do for God. I don't care where you want to do it. I don't care how it works. There's a pattern in the Bible. You want to be successful? Get the pattern. And here it is for ministry. All right, the first one's found in verse 27. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words have I made a covenant with thee. Now in your Bible... <clears throat> There's eight covenants. This one here is called the covenant of Moses. This would be number five in your Bible if you're putting them all together there. This is called the Mosaic covenant. And I, I know that you and me in a Christian stance, there's no such thing as a covenant between me and you and God. You hear a lot of Christians try to do that, but that just shows you how little they know about the Bible. There's no covenant between me and God in a, in a sense. I'm part of his body. There is no covenant to it. I'm in him. He's in me. The reason why he had to make a covenant with all these other people, because they were not in him. You don't find any covenant to the church. But I, I want to make a, a personal application here to you for something that, that is a personal thing. And that is, maybe God in, a, in the church of saving you and coming into you and you into him, that's not a covenant in the sense of all the other covenants, which it isn't. But I want to tell you something. You got to take that concept and look at your ministry and my ministry and service for God. And it starts with the deal that you make with God in your heart about what you're going to do for him. 
And you know that's the thing that's lacking in your life? And some of you will not do that. Some of you will not sit down with God and say, okay, God, you did this for me. I understand it now. Here's what I'm going to do for you. You won't do that. You out of, you're like Moses when he was way back there uh, beating around the bush, so to speak. You tell God all kinds of things. You never do it. You promise God all kinds of promises. You have no, you have, you have no desire in your heart that you're ever going to fulfill those things. It's lip service to God. That would be Psalm 78 that I gave you before. You see, God's friend are you? Are you God's friend? I guarantee you in most cases it's a one-sided conversation. This is what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 where Paul says to the Philippian church, you need to work out your own salvation. You need to come to an agreement. If you want to call it a covenant, I like the word in a personal sense, but you need to sit down with God like Moses did and you need to decide what you are or what you are not going to do. You need to get honest for the first time in your life. And if you don't want to serve God, then just tell him. I'm not sure why you would keep wanting to come to church. I'm not sure you'd want to, why you keep reading. Well, I was going to say keep reading your Bible. We know that doesn't happen. I I don't know why you continue to want to have the pretense. But at some point in your life, I know it was true in my life. And I know some of you out there who I know uh, in a personal way, uh, maybe better than the other. I know it happened in your life. I know there was a time in my life where I was just like Moses. I had to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season down in Egypt, or I had to suffer the affliction of the people of God. And boy, is there an affliction to it. But that's a decision that you've got to make. And Moses made that choice. He counted the affliction with the people of God greater riches than the sin for a season in Egypt. Most of you have not come to that place in your life yet. Many of you will never come to that place in your life again. Many of you are in denial. You're in a situation where you think you can actually kind of be in fellowship with God and be kind of out. You actually think there's a gray area with God. You actually think that you can live in that twilight zone of Christianity that in reality does not exist. You're either sold out to him or you're worthless to him this morning, one or the other. There's no middle ground to it. I wish there was. I'd like to live there myself. I'll tell you the second thing. Verse 28. And he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't either eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. You know, I'll tell you something else that'll make you God's man and build that friendship with him. The Bible says he was on that mountain 40 days and 40 nights. That's your alone time with God. He had 40 days and 40 nights. I'm not suggesting that you go set a check into a motel for 40 days or 40 nights or lock yourself in the basement. That's not the point. For 40 days and 40 nights, he had no distractions. He was alone with God. And when he was alone with God, he got what God wanted him to have. And the second thing, once you come to that deal with God, and you recognize that you now choose to suffer the affliction of the people of God better than the sin for a season, and the pleasures of Egypt, and all that goes along with it, then the thing that builds that relationship with you is your time with God. Hey, I taught you song of song before. I guarantee you, very few of us want to be with God the way God wants to be with us. We give God what's left over in our lives, don't we? Sure we do. 
When you figure out your income and you, and you put your measly tithe in or most of you don't put it in at all or don't do anything at all, you don't think about God. You don't think about what he did for you. You don't think about the work of God. All you think about is what I'm going to buy, what I'm going to do, and what I'm going to have. You know what Mel used to teach? I never told you this. Mel used to teach that not everybody that says they're saved and is saved is going in the rapture of the church. Now, when he used to say that way back when, you ever hear him say that, Bob? When I used to hear him say that way back when, I was thinking that he was saying that to scare me. And it did. But the older I get and the longer I'm in this thing, and the more I think about our conversations with it, and he'd always play me like a fish with it. Well, you make a statement like that, needless to say, that's pretty contrary to everything we hear today. And I, for many, many years, and maybe even a little bit even today, I, still, I, I, I would still like to think that he was just saying that to get our attention. Couldn't have got mine. I, I would hope that he was saying that to, to scare me. But then I, the side of me always sees these old guys who, who came out of a time period where the Bible was much more appreciative than it is today. The walk with God with these men were much more better than it was today. And I think to myself sometimes late at night, and I try not to wake up late at night so I don't think about it. So if you ever walk by my bed, that bottle of sleeping pills is to keep me from thinking about what I'm about to say. I wonder myself, do these old boys see something that we didn't see? Did he see something that he's not willing to give me for whatever reason he, God gave him? The path is narrow and taken our I don't know. But here's what happened. When I defend him, try to defend it against him, he just kind of laugh at me. And I try to say, well, you know, Mel, the Bible says that, you know, we're part of the body of Christ. The Bible says that God came down and died for me. He lives inside of me. And I'm the bride of Christ. He's coming back. And he said, that's my whole point. That's the thing that really bothers me. He said, let me ask you a question. If you had a woman that you were espoused to and you're going to marry her, and you were gone somewhere in the service and you were going to come back and marry her, and when you got back, you found out she slept and fornicated with every guy in town, would you still want her for your bride? Now, that's a tough one. Amen. I'm telling you, Song of Song makes it very clear that very few of us want to be with God the way God wants to be with us. And you know what? <laughs> right now, <laughs> it shows in your face. <laughs> I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I don't understand it. I really don't. I don't understand why he would do everything that he did for you and for me. I don't understand why you would accept everything that he did and then absolutely give him what? The dog scraps of your life? What is left over? What you don't want? What you don't need? What you don't care about? Oh, hey, I understand exactly where he's coming from. I'm not saying he's right or wrong. I hope he was dead wrong. 
He never told me. But boy, the more I think about it, the more I think about, man, does that ever make sense to me? Well, look at the third one, verse 28 again. Now, the Bible says he's fasting 40 days and 40 nights. So he is in a weakened condition. This is the great truth. The Bible says he's fasting. And I, I, I tell you right now that, that that's a key here. We know from Bible study on Thursday night, if you've been around any length of time at all, from Psalm 69 and Psalms 35, we understand what fasting really is. We understand that 99.9999% of people that fast today don't do anything to do with the Bible. They wrong pattern. We, don't, we now know that fasting isn't so you can get what you want, but that's what people want. God, I want a new car. I want you to answer my prayer. I want you to give me this woman. I want you to give me this man. I want you to give me this. I want you to give me that. So you know what, Lord? To get your attention, to show you how sincere I am, I'm going to fast and I'm going to starve myself till you give me. And God's up there saying, you need to lose some weight anyhow, pal. Starve. The Bible tells us very clearly that fasting was never done to get anything from God. Fasting was done because it shows you how weak you are and how frail you are and how wicked you are and it puts you in a proper frame of reference to accept what God is doing even if you don't want to do it. And that's a short version of it. When you're with God and you see His glory, it puts everything into perspective for you of who you are. And that's where Moses was. He's up there. He's in a weakened condition. He hasn't eaten. He hasn't drank anything for 40 days. And now he is in a better position to not only see the glory of God, he's in a better position to understand the glory of God because he's got a better appreciation of how worthless and rotten he is. Isaiah. Oh, Isaiah chapter 6. Here it comes. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 5, when Isaiah wrote about seeing the glory of God. He saw the glory of God. And he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And, and, and one cried unto the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here it comes. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Here it comes. Then said I, after he saw the glory of God, after he saw the holy smoke, after he saw the glory of God towards the sea, then he said I, Woe is me. Seeing the glory of God will always put you in the right perspective of who you and I are. Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. Here it comes. And I will dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Seeing God's glory always puts you and me in the right perspective. It puts you in the right perspective because now you can do something because God will become your sufficiency. You now won't be sufficient in yourself. The things of this world don't mean anything anymore because of your basic agreement with God and covenant personally with God. You now know that God saves you and you've given time to that. Now you're realizing and recognize just as Moses, you're moving through those 
those four areas of his life. Took him to figure it out. Honest to God, honest to truth this morning. If God gave some of you a thousand years, you'd never figure it out. Not because you can't, because you don't want to. Look at verse 29. Back now to Exodus. And it came to pass when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand. When he came down from the Mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. Now here's a great principle of ministry of being a Christian of light and a Christian of life. Moses had been God with God alone for 40 days and 40 nights. When he finally comes down, his face, his countenance shines with the glory of God. And everybody that sees him, everybody that sees him, everybody that sees him, everybody that sees him knows that he's been with God because of what's on his face. Let me ask you a question. And I have no idea. But after last night, what you did and where you went, what does your face show this morning? You see, it's a simple fact. And this is what makes it so easy. We, we like to puff it up and make it complicated, but it's really not. It's really not at all. You cannot hang out with God and not shine like Him. You cannot hang out with God and not pick up His character. You cannot hang out with God and not pick up His characteristics. You cannot hang out with God and pick up His glory in your face, and you cannot hang out with God and pick up His countenance. You cannot. If you do those things, you will get these things. I'll look at verse 29 again. Here's another great principle. When he came down from being with God, he didn't know himself that his face showed God's glory. The Bible says, wist not. That's an old English word. Didn't know. Now, that's a great principle. You know what that tells me? That we are most humbled and used of God in the greatest way when we don't even know it. Had a guy a couple, oh, four or five years ago, leave my ministry and This guy had been either booted or left every church in Kansas City. Caused problem wherever he went. Nobody's going to tell him what to do. He's going to go start his own church. I tried to tell him. I said, you know what? Men don't start churches. Churches start churches. But all he's going to show me, he ain't showing me nothing. But I'll tell you this. I never met a more arrogant guy in all my life. A guy that was so puffed up and thought he was, you know, he, he always talking about, uh, you know, grace, grace, grace. Guy ain't got enough grace to put in the left eye of a blind mosquito. Sent me a text about a year ago and said, because I'm such a humble man, I won't give you the rest of the text. It was akin to a butt kissing, but I won't, you, you know. He said, because I'm such a humble man, I felt like sending him back. You mean because you were a humble man? That verse says if you're a humble, you don't even know you're humble. The idea of your arrogancy to go around saying, because I'm a humble man. Well, boy, you don't even know what side to get out of bed on when it comes to getting into the Bible. You're a humble man? Well, your church is not even a New Testament local church. It wasn't started by another church. It was started by a man. There ain't no church in that Bible was ever started by a man. They're always started by another church. When this church was started, the church I was going to, pastor came to me and said, it's time for you to get back in the church. I said, and you're going to have to start it because the Bible teaches that's the pattern that churches start churches. And some of you were there that morning he preached. Started our church. 
This guy went out and did his own thing and continued to do his own thing, which will be doing nothing but propagating his arrogancy because I'm such a humble man. You're out of your mind. You're an idiot. You're an idiot. That pattern tells me that when Moses came down, he didn't know his face shined. He had no idea his face shined. And when you're humble and it's your best with God, and I see it, the times that you think, I, you've said it to me before, boy, I did a terrible job. And yet, you did a great job. I had good times when I thought to myself, boy, that was the stupidest message I ever preached. And it winds up turning sometimes it's the best thing I ever preached. And there's times when I get up there and say, boy, I preached the best I ever preached. Somebody comes and says, I didn't even understand anything you said today. <laughs> You're not at your best when you know it. You're at your best when God shows it through your face and nobody else sees it. That's a pattern. That's a pattern. That's a pattern. I'll look at verse 30 again. 30 through 31, 32. Here's another one. Number six of your counting. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterwards, all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. You know what? They're afraid of him. They're afraid of him. They're afraid to come down. They're afraid of him. Bible says that they came down, they saw that face, and they were afraid to come nigh to him. Now, there's two aspects to this I want to talk about. The first one is the power of God in your life will always intimidate phony Christians. But then that's what it's supposed to do. Christians that if they stand off by themselves someplace, they look okay. But put them into a real Bible-believing church with a Bible ministry, with Bible hard preaching, and uh, may I use plainness of speech? They look like a 1960 Volkswagen next to a Corvette. I mean, I'm telling you, the power of God in your life, that shine, that glow in your face, will always intimidate phony Christians. You know why? That's why people, when you get on fire for God, people will come up and say, no, you don't want to be a fanatic. Why not? When you go to the football seasons or you go to the World Series, I was going to say the Royals game, but nobody goes to those anymore. <laughs> I had to call the police, Joe, last week. I had to break into my car. People had given me four Royals tickets, and I was going to take my wife and my family in there, and I went into the place to get a sandwich, and a stupid me left them laying right on the seat. I came out, my window was broken. Somebody threw in two more tickets. <laughs> Everybody's a fanatic. Where do you think the word fan comes from? Oh, turn it down now. I don't, you want to become a fanatic. Why not? Sounds good to me. Amen. But that's the way it is. You talk about God in the Bible, they talk about other Christians. You get excited about the ministry, about our restart, and about this, and about all the things that God's doing, they think it's stupid. See? People will be afraid of you. In some cases, it'll cause you some problems. It might cost you your family. It may cost you your friend. It may cost you your relationship. It may even cost you your marriage. But as tough as all that may be, that's better than what it will cost you with the judgment seat of Christ if you don't do what God calls you to do. You know, maybe Mel was right. At least I see why he thought what he thought. After 40 years myself, I see God's people, boy, in action, man. 
Now look at verse 33. Here's the second aspect. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. You see, in dealing with people in the ministry who don't understand or maybe they're not where they need to be yet, you can scare them. And that's not always a good thing. So, I, I, you know, in my own personal life, and I tell some of you guys this too, you know, and sometimes you need to dial it down a couple of notches. You can't give, always give them what you'd like. That you've got to put on the veil, so to speak. One of the first things I learned in teaching and preaching the Bible 40 plus years ago, first thing I learned, one of the greatest lessons I learned, you can't ever teach all the Bible you know. You do, you're scared of fire out of people. They'll think you're, I, I watched some of you make the biggest, dupest mistake in your life. You come to Thursday night Bible study where we can talk about things, you know, and get things out there. We'll talk about some deep thing in the Bible that is really off the wall, that is absolutely true, but it's so out of date with the people and the stupidity that where they're at today with a lack of Bibles and the Holy Spirit of God in their life. And you'll go to go to work someplace or see your other Christian friends. You'll try to explain it to them. You know what? They look at you like you're an idiot. They'll tell you you're in a cult. They'll tell you you're this. You know why? You scare them. You know why? Because you shouldn't be giving them. Put the veil on. You need to know when to and when not to. I'll be honest with you. When I get into a crowd, we go to a restaurant someplace, you know, and the place is packed, and people are all waiting around there. I got the most uncontrollable urge of my life just to clear off a spot and preach to them. When I was first got saved, I used to work at the Hoover Company. And there was a gate where they wouldn't let you in until right at 7 o'clock when you had to go to work. And I was young back then and, and you know, and pretty stupid in a lot of things. And I'd be, I figured, you know, there's a crowd because I didn't really have a place to preach. I'd get there about quarter till when people started out there. I'd start passing out track. I'd have capped the body. They weren't going anywhere. I get into a restaurant and see those people out there packing, eating around. I watch those people sitting down and grabbing on that food that God provided for them and gave them and ever thanking God for it. And my blood just curdled, boy. I want to get that microphone that says, table of two now ready, and just let them have it. <laughs> but I don't. You know why I don't? Keep the veil on. <laughs> they think you're nuts. They think you're crazy. But I'd like to. I have to take deep breath, man. But I don't. I put the veil on. This is called discernment. This is called discretion. This is called prudence. This is called perception. Now on Sunday and Thursday, you see, I can open it up a bit because I'm on my home turf here. But even then, I'll be honest with you, I can't do everything I'd like to do the way I'd like it. You think I don't have, you, you hear me up there and I get going pretty good sometimes and really lay it out, but you, you, you don't, you don't. You don't know what I'd like to lay out. Popular term is come back to the middle, I think, because I'm hearing a lot today. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you something in preaching and teaching. You better learn these things. Hey, if I told you this morning what I really believe about that Bible and what it really teaches about heaven and about hell and about the great white throne judgment and about the judgment seat, and about churches today, and about Christians, and about pastors, and about the way things are running, and what's waiting for you on the other side, I would scare you to death. Put the veil on. I like verse 33. It says, until Moses had done speaking, he put a veil on his face. He figured it out right in the middle of what he said. I guess it was the eyes as big as pie plates, and the mouths as open as big as Mammoth Cave. And the people looking at him in stark terror, Moses said, 
or something. What, what do I have clothes in my tooth? <laughs> you know, what, what are you looking at me for? He didn't know he shone. And when he saw it, he had the glory of God and he was scaring him. Put a veil on. He was smart enough to figure it out. Listen, someday when you get on fire for God and you got that book and you know what you got and you know what's coming and you know what it says and you know what, how it's going to play out and you see these milk, toast, Twinkie Pie, spineless, procrastinating Christians who wanna, don't want to stand for anything or don't want to do anything. I mean, when you know what that book says and what God's called you and how he saved you and you just want to rip their heads off. But I don't. I'd like to top the sermon sometime for some of you that have been around here for, what, 5, 10, 15 years, and you're still not off dead center, and I'd just like to clear off a spot and just say, what don't you understand? Don't you know what's coming? But I don't. I never talk about those things. I never preach to that level. But I want to tell you something. If I told you what I really think, I'd scare the fire out of you today. If I told you what I really think, how it ought to go, even though it'll never go that way because it can't, because you got to have the veil on. But at the end of the day, if I told you what I really thought this thing is in Christianity and where it's going and what's waiting for you, and when you get to that judgment seat of Christ, why the God says it's the terror of the Lord? You can't do those things. Scare them to death, man. I think some of your kids are headed for the lake of fire, just as sure as I'm standing here. But you know what? I'm not going to tell you. Keep the veil on. I think some of you in times past have made the biggest mistake in your life, and you don't even know it. Boy, I could center one sermon on it and hopefully, in my mind, fix your problem. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. You're just like the people of Israel. That's the way Christians are. I'm the same way. When I sat in Mel's thing, thank God I figured it out. But I, I, I had my time in the wilderness. I, I think that I, you want to. I think that this idea of, of, of America is the only country in the world where the government gives tax write-offs for for what you give the church. I have people all the time sign this, get this pledge, call your congressman. I hear they're going to take tax exemption away from churches, and I think we're going to lose our tax exemption. Then lose it. What do I care? You think God and the durability of the church and all that it has to do and all that it's done, you think that God has to rely on you getting a tax credit for that? You think real God's people, well, that will slow them up? Do you really? No. The reason why you worry about it because it will slow you up. That's the problem. But you can't preach those things. Got the veil on. I'll tell you something else. You ain't going to like this either. Because this ain't going to happen. But you want to know how I feel. Maybe you don't want to know how I feel. So it's okay. No. I think churches out of public giving records. Published giving records. You think I care if you see what my giving record is? Danny, I don't know where you're at. Anybody wants to see it can see it any time, place, or anywhere you want to see it. You think I care? Now, why is that always so personal and private? I mean, I hear you guys get up and give testimonies about who you want to Christ. That doesn't slow you up. 
I've heard you get up and say, well, God answered this prayer. God gave me this, and I want so-and-so to Christ, and they're being disciplined and doing really good, and you don't have a problem with that. Why do God's people have a problem getting up and saying, well, God gave me a job last week, and I've not been able to tithe, and now I can give my money to God, and this is what it was, and I'm so happy for it. You say, well, you're boasting now. You boast in everything. You think you get up and say, well, I had four people saved last week, and you're not careful with that? That isn't a boast. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying, why do you pick and choose? You want me to tell you why you pick and choose? You probably figured it out already. I can tell by your faces you have. Your life's an open book. I mean, we like to get up and talk about how much we love God. The Bible says, if any man love God, the same is known of him. What, is all that over here? And then you're giving to God is over here? And personally, I don't care. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. I know what trips God's people's triggers. I know. You ain't going to tell me after 40 plus years of ministry that you can't stand in a church, any church, and I can guarantee you, I can tell by where people sit, by how people sing, by what they do, I can give you the demographics of who's got it and who doesn't got it. And if you don't think you can, after 40 years of watching it, seeing it, and knowing where the people are, you're out of your mind. I keep the veil on. I don't ever preach those things. I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle. Go to your room. <laughs> Now, here's number eight. Boy, is this a great verse. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. Oh, that's such a great verse. And this is what I enjoy about, and I can't speak for you, but this is what I enjoy about my time alone with God, face to face. This is where you will become God's friend. You see, you got to keep the veil on when you're preaching. You got to keep the veil on when you're dealing with people because people can't handle it. But when you get to be with the Lord, the veil comes off. Then it's face to face. My favorite verse about studying the Bible, Deuteronomy 29, 29. My favorite verse in the Bible about studying the Bible where it says the secret things belong to the Lord. But then it says that God will give you those secret things. You know when he does? When you spend time alone with him. And some of those secret things, you don't dare tell somebody else. He gave them to you. That's why I don't teach all the Bible I know. That's why I don't preach the Bible the way I like to. I don't think any pastor really does. If he's smart, you got to realize that you're dealing with Christianity with the most amalgamated, messed up, screwed up, fouled up thing you ever saw in your life you got people that most churches are nothing more than a three-year-old daycare center. And you, gotta, you, gotta, you can't give them meat in most cases. you got to give them pablum. you got to give them those little weenie-weenie hot dogs and their thing. And then cut them up for them. you got to cut up their skeddies so they don't choke. That's what you're dealing with today. You can't get into it. 120 years ago, they'd take your hide off every time you can. You try it now, people go in someplace else, which is not a bad thing in some cases. But now there's nothing held back. There's no veil. And this is where... This is where you have your time with him. He'll show you things that would absolutely give other people a heart attack. But see, he's your friend. You talk face to face. You get to see what others never get to see. Not because they can't, but because they don't want to. They got ball tournaments. They got bowling tournaments. 
They got fishing rodeos. They got camping. They got ball games. They got careers. They got life without parole. But you see, but when you're done speaking, when you're done with that time face-to-face, one-on-hell-and-him, which is the greatest time in the world, there's times at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning over the last 40 years of my life, I was telling somebody the other day, we were talking, they had come over, I forget who it was now, and I showed them. They said, well, how did you put all that? And I said, you know what? I, I, I briefly explained the process that it took me 15 years of my life of sitting down three or four hours a day. And I had a full-time job. I wasn't in the ministry then. And I, and I, and I actually I, I kind of laid the thing out for them. I forget who it was now. And I showed them, and I, thought that, I told them, I said, you know what? It was the single greatest time of my life. It was like I couldn't wait to get home and get away from everything and everybody and just open that book down there in a basement where nobody was around, where me and God and boy, that Shekinah glory boy was right there, and boy, did God show me some things. And I, one thing about me, it's probably the only good thing about me and my character is I ascribe uh, myself to Samuel, and that is the fact that I let none of his words fall to the ground, boy. He told it to me. I wrote it down. I wrote it down. I wrote it down. But when you're done speaking with him, and you go back to ministering to people, Put the veil back on. You know, God's people should be, you should be like a Saturn V rocket blasting off at Cape Canaveral. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I do remember my physics. And when a rocket takes off, it has somewhere between 11 and 12 components that make it the propulsion. That makes it get lift off. Now, every one of those is volatile. Is volatile. Uh, one of them is liquid oxygen. The other one is liquid nitrogen and, and, and hydrogen. And you get any one of those, and you mix it with one of the others, and you've got a terrible explosion. I mean, and we've seen the failures of rockets exploding on the pad. And the reason why it explodes is because they get too much of this, not enough of that, too much of this, and it gets out of control, and it's gone. A rocket blast off that you watch, if you've ever watched them, is nothing more than a small nuclear bomb going off under control. You take all of those volatile propellants and you put them together in the right mixture, in the right quantities, all together, and instead of blowing out, it's under control, it blows it up and it lifts off. So not like your car engine. You got an internal combustion engine. You know what that means? I don't. I love the term. <clears throat> it means that everything gets combustiated. <laughs> everything gets combustiated in your engine. Because I'm such a humble man, I'm going to give you what I'm about to say to you. No. It, you get gas and fire. Not two good things. Illustration, don't go to the gas station and get gas for your lawnmower smoking a cigarette. Good side is, you won't have to worry about the lawn being cut. <laughs> they're, 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 but take gas, notice it's in the back of your car, and you take an engine with spark plugs, fire, the gas comes in through the carburetor in a right mixture, and the fire starts, and it's, that combustion is eternal. It's cased in a steel, iron, or whatever it is, block that keeps it from blowing out. Instead of blowing out, it blows the pistons up and down. 
Did you get that? You people on Skype, did you get that? I'm not sure how you put that in your Bible, but if you can get it in, you're there. <laughs> and it, it's, it's controlled. It's everything in there. And it holds it together. And while it, it forces the energy that would explode and burn your house down and burn your body with 80 degree burns, instead of all of that, it's locked in an internal combustion steel block that forces that explosion to work the pistons, which works this, which works that, and you're driving down the road. That's the way a Christian should be. You got the power of God in you. You got the same power that God used to speak the worlds and the universe into existence. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. And all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood still. That very power is inside you today. But if you just let it out everywhere. Got to put the veil on. You go home today, drive into your house, your street. You look up along the thing, you'll see a telephone pole. The concept of a telephone pole, like a cross, with power hanging on it, has always interested me. But that power is raw power. I don't know if you know this or not, and I'm not much of an electrician, or I'm not much about electricity, if I'd have been with Ben Franklin, we'd have both been fried. But I do know this. The power that's on that pole is raw power. That power, take it straight off that pole, bring it into your house. Your house is smithereens. It's gone. That stuff will blow your house to pieces. Power on a cross can't come directly into your house to give your house light and life. Power off the cross has to come down. Look at it. You'll have one in your front yard or your backyard, or maybe it's on the pole, but it'll be a transformer. And the transformer takes the raw power that'll blow up your house, transforms it down to a workable power that will light your house. God is the power on the pole. Jesus Christ is the transformer. He takes the raw power that comes from God and transforms it down that you and this house can give light and can get life to people who understand it. When you realize that, you keep the veil on. You understand what power you have. You don't teach all the Bible you know. You don't get up and say things that even though it may be 100% true, you know you can't say in the world that we live in and be effective. That's just the way it is. Then the last thing. The last thing, the ninth thing is in verse 35. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. Two aspects to your life. You want to be God's friend? You want to be an able minister? You want to find your sufficiency in God? You want to get to the place in your life where you can be everything that God wants you to be and be used of God? You want to get to the place where you can uh, have all of these things. And I've told you, Moses' life is the study. I just gave you a glimpse of it. Look what we got today, just a glimmer of one little section. There was two times, there's two aspects to Moses' life and Moses' ministry. And there must be two aspects to yours. The first one is your time alone with God. That's where you go in with no veil. 
That's where you get face to face with God. You've made the covenant. You put yourself in the right perspective. You know now that your sufficiency is in Him, not yourself. You're, and you realize that you're at your best when you're at, you, you think you're at your worst. And this is your alone time with God. And the key about that is no veil. No veil. Nothing, nothing that cannot be dealt with. Nothing that He will not show you. But you see, because you're God's man, you have, you have perspective. Because you're God's man, you have discernment. Because you're God's woman, you have, you have prudence. You understand these things. You have discernment. You have discretion. So the second time is when you minister to people. And when you minister to people, you put the veil on. God takes the glory of the epistle written on your heart, and then the principle transforms you to 110 household use. The raw power on the pole that hangs on a pole is transformed to the power that lights not only your house, but lights everybody you come into contact with. You see, you have to have it under control. And Moses is a picture of that. And this is why Paul used this example when he's talking about ministry and told us about the veil. Because the ministry has to be done by the pattern. Everything in the Bible has to be done by the patterns or it doesn't work. Take that lesson today. And I would ask you if you're smart that the lesson today won't be just one that you'll get the tape on and pass it around or get a tape on and listen to it and put it in your Bible, but the message today will be one that will stir your heart to study for ministry one of the greatest men's lives that you'll ever study, and that will be the life of Moses. Well, we'll have a word of prayer here and we'll be dismissed. Um,